Uh, I would invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8 tonight. Mark chapter 8, and keep your finger there. We're going to start, though, I want to start by looking at a few verses from Luke chapter 4. So keep your place in Mark 8. We'll, we'll be there primarily, but I want to point out a few verses in Luke chapter 4 to begin. As you might know, in Luke 4, we have the first recorded words of Jesus' public ministry as he gets up into the temple, into the synagogue, excuse me, at Nazareth and begins preaching. If you look at verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Or Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is Upon me. So Jesus has just come out of his temptation in the wilderness with the devil, with the Satan himself. And he comes here into the synagogue and he begins reading uh, from the book of Isaiah. And I think it's interesting that it says that he found the place. Jesus knew exactly what he wanted to read and what exactly he was supposed to read in this moment. And he reads a very interesting passage from the book of Isaiah. It's actually from Isaiah 61. It's the first couple verses and he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord and he closed the book And he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. It's so fascinating to me what Jesus does here. Because basically he reads a prophecy that everyone in earshot would be familiar with. They would have known exactly the verses that he was speaking. And then he sits down and he basically says, Yeah, I'm the guy. That, that person that's being talked about there in Isaiah that the prophet uh, prophesied of many, many hundreds of years before, I'm that guy. He's here. And this, this day, he says, this prophecy is fulfilled in your ears, in your day. This is, these passages, these verses, I think, serve as Jesus' mission statement. You might say. This is what he came to do. This is who he has come to serve. The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the bruised, the blind. These are the people that he has come to preach the gospel to. And you can see very clearly in verses 28 and 29, this synagogue was not about to have this. Look at what happens. Look at what happens when their prophesied Messiah shows up and starts claiming he's the Messiah. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built and they might cast him down headlong. But he passing through them the midst of the way. He passed through them. He basically vanished from this crowd. The very person that they had been longing for comes and announces himself and they were filled with wrath. They throw him out. That's where it fulfills the prophecy that his own received him not. How sad. 
They don't like the fact that a carpenter's son has come and said, I'm the king that you've been waiting for. It's with that in mind that I want you to keep those thoughts in mind as we come to Mark chapter 8. And really Mark chapter 8 to me is sort of the linchpin of this entire gospel account. And here I think in, in verses 22 through 26, we're given a very explicit example of Jesus fulfilling his prophecy from Luke 4. In fact, where he heals this blind man from Bethesda. Look at verse 22. And he, that is Jesus, cometh to Bethesda, and they bring a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. When he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked if he saw aught. So this group of friends bring their, their other friend, their other comrade to, to Jesus' feet. They're burdened by his condition, the fact that he has been blind, perhaps from birth, and they knew something of Jesus' power, even if they didn't know exactly what that meant. They knew something that Jesus was a healer. He could perform miracles. And so they bring their friend to him to touch him. They want a miracle performed for them. And then Jesus notices him. It says, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And look at what it says in verse 24. And he looked up. And said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. Now, this is a very interesting miracle to me. I want you to notice a few oddities right away. Uh, first of all, this miracle is, the, is only recorded in Mark's gospel. It's exclusive to this account that Mark is recording. Also, uh, secondly, the second sort of oddity is that it's one of three where it was kind of performed in relative privacy. Jesus takes this man out of the village, out of the town. Uh, the only really witnesses to this miracle were Jesus and the person he performed the miracle on and his disciples. It was relatively private. It wasn't in a town square. It wasn't in the midst of the city. It was outside of the way. It was in relative privacy. Jesus takes him out of the town, so I think, to uh, avoid any unnecessary publicity that would surely follow a healing of this kind. He doesn't want that to, to follow him. But also, the third thing that uh, is immediately jumps out to me, the third oddity that I want to spend the bulk of our time kind of unpacking is this. That, did you notice that this miracle wasn't immediate? Look again at verse 24. This is after Jesus has uh, taken mud and spit upon his eyes. And it says, and he looked up and he sees men as trees walking. Now I'll tell you, I have bad vision. When I take off my glasses, I see two men as trees walking. <laughs> uh, uh, my eyes are very blurry. I have very bad eyesight. Um, and I, I, I think about that very uh, clearly, that he can't see clearly. Jesus spits on the ground and puts that spittle on the man's eyes. And you think a miracle is going to happen. You think that something amazing is happening. And then all those who are in earshot, what happens? He can't see. He can sort of see, but he can't see all the way. It's still blurry. His vision is still foggy. And then after that, it says in verse 25, he put his hands again upon his eyes. 
And he made him look up, and he was restored, and he saw every man clearly. I think it's so fascinating that this was a gradual miracle. It wasn't instant. It wasn't that he said one word, and like the the daughter, the Jairus' daughter was raised to life. Or he said one word to get up and walk, and the lame man started jumping around. It was a gradual miracle. So why did he do this? What's the point? What was the reason that Jesus did this gradual miracle? You know, some have suggested the idea that that perhaps it had to do with a lack of faith or something like that. That either on the part of the friends or on the part of the blind man himself, that there was some sort of lack of faith in play. And that he didn't have quite enough faith and so Jesus put his hands on him again. I would say that's very, very unlikely. I don't think that Jesus would pin the hopes of this man's restoration on the quality or the measure of this man's faith. Also, I don't think um, uh, that 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 idea, that suggestion, that interpretation, uh, again, brings the whole chapter that we have before us into view. You know, you might know this, but my dad is famous for saying that the three most important uh, words in studying the Bible are also the three most important words in realty, which is location, location, and location. Again, the context is king when it comes to understanding what's happening in the scriptures. And this interpretation that the idea that they had a lack of faith, and if they just had more faith... That it would have been an instant miracle is, I think, a very man-centered interpretation of what's happening. Again, we have to look at the context. Despite this miracle happening, as I said, in relative exclusivity, I think this scene speaks more inclusively. I think it speaks to us. This gradual miracle, I think, is Jesus making a specific, a very poignant, a very significant point to his disciples. Healing, and I would actually even say this, that healing this man's blindness is actually a secondary point of what he's trying to do. He's using this blind man as sort of like a living parable. And let me show you what I mean by that. Uh, jump back at the beginning of the chapter at verse number 11. We have the Pharisees. They come to Jesus again. It says, and the Pharisees come for- came forth and began to question with Jesus, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. They come to him again, clamoring for a sign, clamoring for a miracle. They want something divine to happen for them, something heavenly. They're after something dazzling. If you are the promised one, if you are the Messiah, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph the carpenter from Galilee, we need you to do something amazing. We need you to, uh, like Samuel's thunder or Elijah's fire, we need you to do something like that. We need a sign. We need something to catch our eye. But also they're not genuine. I like how the text says they came to him tempting him. They're trying to, to trap Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus into a pickle, you might say. And they request a sign, a proof to uh, both discredit and condemn Jesus. But I love that Jesus is just, he's just totally frustrated by this request. He's baffled by it. It says in verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. Jesus lets out this long sigh. 
Again, with the signs. Again, with the miracles. Again, with the requests. He says, why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. He's grieved by their continued blindness. He's grieved by the Pharisees' continued uh, missing of the point of what Jesus has been saying this whole time. These supposed religious experts had missed the point of what Jesus had come to do. Also, it completely ignores the fact of the very previous scene that had just happened in Mark. Mark 8 verses 1 through 10 has, records for us the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus, like the feeding of the five, this was a separate occasion. He feeds 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fishes, it records for us. A miracle has just been performed in their vicinity. And again, they ask, give us a sign. Show us something amazing. And look, at he's frustrated, and he leaves them, verse 13, and he left them, and entering into the ship again, departed to the other side. He's frustrated by their inability to see past their own conceptions of religiosity, and he just leaves them. He gets his disciples in a boat, and they sail again across the Sea of Galilee. And it's here where we have a very fascinating scene. Look at verse 13 and again. And he left them and entered into the ship again and departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. So Christ enters this boat. He leaves the Pharisees on the side of the lake of the Sea of Galilee. And he leaves them with no sign at all. And he proceeds to try and teach his disciples, his chosen twelve, something very crucial. A crucial point of doctrine. Beware of the Pharisees and of Herod. Beware of their poisonous doctrine, you might say. And he's, uh, he, he tries to teach them, and I say try intentionally because we have to remember that these disciples were men. They don't, I think sometimes we kind of loft up the apostles to a status that they weren't actually were. These men were just like men we are today, right? They, they, they weren't very professorial. They were carpenters. They were fishermen. They were men who were blue-collar workers, Because look at what they were thinking about as Jesus was trying to teach them a very important doctrine. Look at verse 16. Or excuse me, look at verse 15 again. And he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. (laughs) Jesus is trying to exhort them about a very wrong teaching of what was going on in in Israel in that day. He cautions them against a sort of secular religion. Against the idea of, of, of a secular Messiah. As if he was to come and he was going to overthrow the Roman government. And he was going to bring in a societal reform. And he was going to bring Israel back to its true and rightful dominance. That was sort of a, a common belief in the day. That this Messiah that was promised about all over the Old Testament. And yes, even Isaiah 61. That this Messiah was going to come and he was just going to... Uh, do a complete political and a societal overthrow. 
And he again asserts that this is not what he has come to do. Beware of this leavenous doctrine. This leavenous teaching. This poisonous teaching. Don't be distracted by it. Beware of it. And what are they thinking about? Their stomachs. They're hungry. Remember my kind of guys. I think about food all the time. They're thinking about their bellies. Jesus is trying to use an example about bread and they're thinking about literal bread. <laughs> he tries to exhort them in the truth of his message. But the, more, the twelve here are more worried about the fact, again, if you notice in verse 14, that they had forgotten to take bread and they had only brought one loaf with them. Can you imagine how frustrated Christ must be? I think again that he was uh, sighing deeply in his spirit on this boat. (laughs) He had just performed a miracle where he took seven loaves and fed 4,000 people. And they're worried about one loaf feeding 12? Jesus, (laughs) again I imagine, sighs. He's grieved by the fact that they too were blind. They too were missing the point. But again, Jesus is so patient with us. And he's patient with his disciples. Look at verse 17. And when Jesus knew it, when Jesus knew their hearts, he saith unto them, Why reason ye, because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not, neither understand. Have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes see ye not, and having ears hear ye not? And do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They say unto him, Twelve. And when the seven among four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, Seven. And he said unto them, How is it that ye do not understand? They still didn't get it. He was reminding them of what they had literally just witnessed, and they still didn't see It's almost as if Jesus is saying in verse 21, you still don't get it, do you? You still don't see. And imagine the disciples' faces being sort of deer in the headlights. Jesus, it's it's just bread. (laughs) What are you talking about? Why are you being so serious right now? And he's saying that this is very serious. Because you don't see me. You see me and you're with me and you hear me, but you don't really see me. Are you so blind we can almost hear him say, and this is the backdrop to the healing of the blind man from Bethsaida. He leads this blind man outside to illustrate a crucial truth for his disciples and yes, for us. He wasn't looking for fame. He wasn't looking for popularity. He wasn't looking for notoriety. He wasn't looking to make a name for himself at all. He was showing us who he was. He was showing his disciples, I am the Messiah. I am God's son. He was showing them also who he was for, pointing us back to Luke chapter 4. I am for the poor and the oppressed and the blind. But not just blind physically. I I am for the blind spiritually, Jesus is saying. Because you have to see, you have to remember too, in Scripture, our eyes and vision and sight is often used as a metaphor for understanding or belief. And so those without sight were those without understanding. 
And this blind man here, I think, serves, again, as a living parable of the disciples themselves. He was their spiritual representative. They had glimpsed what Jesus could do, but they didn't really understand what he was doing. They didn't understand why he had come to do this. And just as this man wasn't able to see clearly after Jesus' first touch, the disciples still didn't get it. As the blind man was without sight, the disciples were without understanding. They, they lacked the ability to see clearly who Jesus was and what he was coming to do with this preaching of the kingdom and with this preaching of the gospel. As this blind man saw trees, saw men as trees walking, so too the twelve saw Christ but vaguely. But with blurry vision. It was out of focus. They were still operating under that inbred system that Jesus was coming to be a political wrangler or a societal reformer. And they were pinning their hopes on the fact that he was going to come and bring them back into the great uh, halls of dominance. You can see it clearly because at the end of Mark 9, they resort back to themselves and they end up ending at the end of Mark 9 arguing about who is the greatest. They're still concerned about this idea that the kingdom was going to be an earthly kingdom. And Jesus was trying to get them to see that his kingdom was heavenly. His kingdom was different. I think very clearly here, Jesus' concern isn't necessarily for the blindness of this man's eyes, but for the blindness of his apostles' hearts. He's concerned that like the Pharisees, they too were attracted to signs. They were looking for miracles. They were looking for something to get them to wake up. And this entire scene to me in verses 22 through 26 answers Jesus' own question. Where he asks them, how is it that you don't understand? Here, let me show you what I'm talking about, Jesus might say. This is you. This spiritual, or excuse me, this blind man, he is your representative. You see me, but you don't see me. You hear me, but you are missing the point. And I think this blind man's blurred vision is representative not only of the disciples' spiritual blindness, but also ours as well. Of our weak views of who Christ is. And what he can do. How often, you don't have to raise your hands, but how often have you clamored for a sign from God to give you evidence of what you should do? God, give me a sign of who to marry. Give me evidence, proof of what job to take, what career path to choose, what person to befriend, what person to talk to. How often do we, like Gideon, after we've been given the promise of absolute victory, go out and fleece God and and try and determine God's will? I'm reminded, uh, there's this tragic, to me, tragic story of a pastor recently who went viral. He went super internet famous recently, as as the people say. Because after 20 years of ministry... 40 years of devout Christian service, he has publicly denounced his faith. In a long string of Twitter posts, this 
pastor, ex-pastor, has completely denounced his faith. And why? One of the reasons he cites is because of a lack of miracles. He was desperate for some sort of sign to get him proof that this whole thing was true and was real. And it was, it was something that he could believe in. And I couldn't help but think of this story as I was reading those tragic tweets. The fact that he was almost basically saying what the Pharisees were saying. Jesus, give me a sign. And it's almost as if I wanted to say to him in Jesus' words, you already have it. Because Jesus is the sign. He is all the evidence you will ever need that God isn't aloof. He isn't indifferent. He doesn't um, just cast us off into oblivion. He is desperately and, and desirous of us. He is part of this world. Dissatisfaction with the incarnated Christ is a surefire way to put yourself on the trajectory of unbelief. Dissatisfaction with the very fact that God has come down is a surefire way to miss the point of what Jesus has come to do. He wasn't merely another man. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a humanitarian who was trying to help helpless people. He wasn't a political wrangler. He was God in the flesh. God come down. As John says in John chapter 1, he was the word among us. Who dwells among us. Or as Peter says in his first epistle. He was the grace that comes to us. That's who Jesus is. He comes preaching a very different message. A very different kingdom. Not one that we can see through politics or social reform. It was one that we could see through mercy and through forgiveness and through deference. One writer says it this way, that the gospel not merely presents itself to you, but comes to you. It does not ask you to meet it halfway. It meets you all the way. The gospel is not a voice which speaks to you from afar, but one which comes to your very ear and very heart. This is what Jesus had come to do. He had come to be with us. To dwell among us. This is the Christ. He was breaking through his disciples spiritual blindness. To show them that he is the savior. He is the savior, the Lord, and he is the king. And if Jesus himself isn't enough of a sign for you to believe in this book. I don't think anything else is. He is all the proof we will ever need that God is for us. And that God is not against us. He is for us. And he is with us. The 4th century church father, St. Athanasius of Alexandria. He's a fascinating character to me because he was writing and ministering in his time when the Arian heresy was very popular. Which had tried to discredit the divinity of Christ. His most famous work is on the incarnation. And in it Athanasius says this. That even on the cross. Jesus did not hide himself from. uh, Excuse me. Hide himself from sight. Rather he made all creation witness to the presence of its maker. Jesus was about to show himself on the cross as the true and better king. 
And he was saying to his disciples, this is what I have come to do. I am the maker and I have come to die for what I have made. I am the creator and I myself have become a creature for you. I am the savior and I'm walking and talking among the same crowd who would soon spit upon me. Like dad said this morning, he bathes the feet of his betrayers. Jesus on the cross is forgiving the very people who were crucifying him. As he cries out, as they're spitting on him and mocking him, God forgive them for they know not what they do. He was ministering and serving those who would soon betray him and reject him. And this is who Jesus is. He is the Jesus, the prophesied Messiah from Isaiah 61. And seeing Jesus clearly is seeing him in this light as a God who is full of grace and truth. As a God who is not indifferent to us, but he is not afraid to get his hands dirty and deliver us. He has come down to be a part of this world. And he says, I have come not to destroy it, I have come to remake it. He is a God who is not ashamed to die for those who are already dead that they might live. This is who our God is. He's getting his disciples to wake up. To see me, he says. See me as I am. I am the God who has been made flesh. God who humbles himself as a servant to die for servants. To die a wicked man's death. I keep going back to this verse in Isaiah 53. That awesome chapter in Isaiah's prophecy that tells of the Messiah. In fact, let me read it. Because I don't want to mess it up. In Isaiah 53 though, that last verse has such a fascinating phrase in it. It says... Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. He was numbered among the wicked. He was numbered among the betrayers, among the thieves, among the rebels, among the very sinners who he had come to die for. Jesus, our Father, our Creator, our Maker, our King, has come to die a pauper's death. And he's getting his disciples to see that. Unfortunately, if you read the rest of the chapter, they completely miss the point again. Peter later says, you don't have to die, Jesus. And that great confession, he follows it with something that he shouldn't have said. (laughs) Again, Jesus' point is to show himself as this Messiah. One that we don't expect. One that we uh, perhaps don't always believe in. But one who has come to us regardless. To be numbered among the sinners. To die for sinners. As 2 Corinthians 5 says that he might be made sin for us. The one who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. This is seeing Jesus clearly. This is a, a, a Jesus who breaks through our blindness. 
Who is Jesus to you tonight? Is he uh, someone who has messed up? Is he someone who has missed the mark that he's missed you? That he's forgotten about you? That he's cast you off? That you feel like he is indifferent? That he doesn't care? That he, he hasn't seen you? Are you clamoring for another sign before you move for him? Jesus is your sign. Jesus is all the proof you need. Let us pray.